Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good. It's really hot in the Bay Area, but just trooping through. Going to Texas in two days, baby. I'm excited. Yeah, it's also pretty hot in Seattle, but I think you have me beat. It's like 82 here. I mean, probably the same, dude. It's just, I don't know, it feels hot. My apartment is, is high, so... It's uh, it always is like a good ten degrees hotter in my room, but it's all good. Yeah, I've got a triple monitor set up, and so I just have like radiating heat just like hitting me from all different directions while it's already hot as fuck. But you know that's my problem. Dude, triple monitor—that's pretty badass, though. I'm not gonna lie. Pretty luxury. <laughs> Are you? Do you have like the ETH price on one monitor at all times? Pretty much, yeah. And there's at least one window open. I, I lose track of so many windows sometimes. It's just like, which monitor was that on? Like, how? What, what tab is that? Oh, it's just insane. It definitely doesn't make me more progress, uh, productive. <laughs> That's funny. Um, dude, this is a great episode and uh, one that I know that you were recruiting for for a very mm-hmm. long time. Uh, we had Dan Finlay, one of the key people behind the MetaMask extension, now app, works for Consensus, and, you know, just... He's just a boss, man, and and I really enjoyed this conversation. There's a lot of areas uh, where I really actually aligned with what he was saying in terms of his kind of the way he sees using a blockchain, using contracts, organizing, uh, all that stuff. He's really a smart guy, and this is a fantastic episode. Yeah, for sure. Dan's uh, one of my early OG crypto teachers. Uh, he's the he's got a video that uh, everyone should should watch. Go to YouTube, type in Dan Finley DevCon Zero Seattle. It's the first video that comes up, and it ta- it taught me how a blockchain works. Uh, so while I was doing going down my rabbit hole, uh, Dan was the one that uh, pieced everything together for me with how a, how a blockchain actually functions and uh he just has this meme uh well it's not it's not a meme but i made it a meme uh because he's talking about uh merkle trees and he goes through the list of everything a merkle tree can do in the video and he has this uh, phrase saying like that's not all you can do with merkle trees and then he goes on to the next one and it just got burned into my brain and so as soon as we had any amount of clout with pov crypto i hit dan up and was like yo dan come on the pod uh let's get you Let's get you talking. Uh, he's actually a really big thinker. Uh, so Christian always enjoys going cosmic. And so we pulled Dan on to go cosmic a little bit. Uh, we definitely talk about how blockchains can reorganize humans uh, and allow for um, real world consensus because of the existence of blockchains, regardless of whether you're actually transacting on a blockchain or not. Um, that topic was really, really cool. Um, and then, yeah, you hit on a bunch of others. Yeah, man, this episode was completely jam-packed and I just don't want to hold it back anymore. Without further ado, Dan Finlay. Dan Finley of MetaMask, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. Dan, you have a pretty extensive history in Ethereum, uh, and your video of the, I think, DevCon Zero Seattle meetup uh, was where I connected all the dots with how a blockchain works. Uh, and so uh, you have a, a special spot in my memory for, for teaching me the, uh, how the blockchain operates, like the connecting the dots of a distributed ledger, and, and your phrase... That's not all you can do with Merkle trees is just perfectly like burned into my brain. So, so thank you for, for being an early guide in this very, uh, nebulous world. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, my, my, <laughs> I'm very glad to have gotten to play that part. Um, 
I, I did a little bit of teaching before I got into programming, so I, I like to think that that uh, primed me for that. And thanks for keeping that phrase alive. Merkle trees are indeed very diverse <laughs> and versatile. So, Dan, can you kind of walk us through uh, what you have done in Ethereum? Um, sure. Um, so I was working at Apple with my friend Aaron Davis, and he attended some meetups and met this uh, guy named Vitalik Buterin, who was talking about some some crazy ideas that were uh, based on Bitcoin, but it was like, what if you could build uh, a computer on a Bitcoin-like network? And uh, so we were just kind of riffing about what that could do. And <clears throat> I'd, <clears throat> I'd made like a couple uh, e-debate and e-deliberation and experimented with like some voting on uh, web apps before that. And I had definitely noticed a couple problems with like who counts the votes and things like that. And anyway, so we were trying to make our first app on Ethereum because it was like, oh, cool, uh, finally a, a web platform that anyone can see. It's like transparent. And uh, we realized that uh, the traditional Web 2.0 login system doesn't make sense on a blockchain. Um, the user actually kind of holds the only authority of their account uh, through the key. And then you can build smart co contracts on top of those. And so uh, we started riffing on how we could uh, do that. And eventually we settled on a browser extension. And now there's a, a mobile wallet. And um, we really, we've got like a pretty uh, long road, I think, to go still. But uh, I think it keeps on getting more and more clear. Um, what this kind of peer-to-peer -peer login system looks like. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's been now like, uh, I think we're into our fourth year of doing this thing. And uh, there's there's more apps than ever. There's more like alternative wallets than ever. And uh, the ecosystem is just like so active. Um, it's so easy for the different parts to interoperate uh, to a degree that, you know, the traditional web, you know, did a little bit less so. So, uh yeah, it's been a really exciting ecosystem to be a part of and to help kind of guide the light against. And, and now just kind of, you know, I, I feel like it's like we started, we was like sort of dragging the kite behind us. And now, you know, the wind is carrying and we're just like running to keep up to some degree. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. And I personally have used MetaMask. I know that it's heavily used amongst the Web3 and DeFi world. Can you tell me a little bit more about like, what applications are using MetaMask and how pivotal it is in the current Ethereum community and ecosystem? Yeah, uh, I I no longer can keep track of all the applications that are using MetaMask. There was a time in like 2007 where every new app we were like, "All oh, right, a new app." But like, I I literally don't know all. 2017. Yeah, in 2017. So like for the past like two years, it's been beyond what we can individually keep track of. We can keep like top 20 boards and stuff like that. Um, so. So obviously there's a lot of this uh, DeFi stuff, a lot of exchanges, uh, a lot of, you know, basically speculation. A lot of the early ICOs uh, were built on it, um, but also a lot of the kind of like DAO experimentation. So like governance platforms like Aragon um, or the Moloch DAO, you know, they're, they're using MetaMask as their login system or, or rather they're using the Web3 protocol. We're kind of like defining it like open web standards. So, you know, other people can make uh, Ethereum or Web3 enabled uh, login uh, browsers or login systems. Um, and so, yeah, people people now are making these websites. They're compatible with MetaMask. They can work with other browsers too. And uh, yeah, they, they use them for pretty much anything they can think of doing on the blockchain. I think I think a lot of a lot of projects that are getting built on Ethereum now, at the very least, their first prototype is on MetaMask and then gradually they start adding more login options over over time. But 
uh, yeah, MetaMask, I think since we were kind of the earliest thing, we're kind of like one of the like lower level, lots of options kinds of things. Um, so I'm increasingly embracing our, our role as kind of like the Photoshop of the login systems. There's a lot of new browser or uh, wallets focusing on, let's say a single smart contract wallet or uh, things like that. And those are great and deserve tons of experimentation, but we're kind of like trying to build up from like the platform up. Um, trying to make fewer like hard turns for the user. Yeah, very cool. I almost exclusively use MetaMask, even with my ledger, right? So the, the way that I use MetaMask is my ledger is plugged into my computer, and then MetaMask asks my ledger for permission to make a uh, a transaction. So like the MetaMask is like the bridge between my ledger and the application I'm using. So it makes me feel very secure because you know my funds stay on my ledger, but MetaMask makes it easy for me to to use. Uh, you know, the Web3 and, and all these smart contracts that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to use. Yeah, and it has, like, a compat- compatibility advantage, too, because those websites, they didn't have to know you were going to use a ledger. They just had to say, oh, we're going to mm-hmm. use these, like, kind of generic protocols, and it's just a, a very general way of asking for you to sign a message, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you touched on this a little bit, but can you kind of elaborate on uh, why the traditional Web2 sign-in model just doesn't work with blockchains and uh, kind of how that kind of led uh, product design with MetaMask? Yeah, traditional websites, it's kept on one server. And so all the user accounts are just like uh, rows in a table in a database. Um, But a blockchain is a, a public protocol. So there's literally no confidential data. There's nowhere you could put your password on a blockchain and have it be safe. Um, so instead, the way blockchains validate uh, the actions of an account is that they're all signed cryptographically uh, by a secret key, a secret number that you keep. And so the, the base, basically all MetaMask is is a very fancy way to store a secret number or uh, and then use it to interact with websites you're on. Is it accurate to call MetaMask like a virtual hardware wallet? Uh, I, I don't know if I would even call it a hardware wallet it's it's a wallet <laughs> that, that's enough um uh, yeah virtual. we, yeah, we do enough. sandbox you know so we we keep the keys in a separate process or a separate environment from the website you're visiting so it is isolating right the 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 key security advantage is that you're going to a website and that website has no authority over what you do with your account all they can do is ask your permission and that's a big inversion mm-hmm. over traditional websites where you know you're asking them to log in and um, every time you do an, a- uh, an action you're hoping their server gets your message and tells you it's okay. Um, so now it's a user-centric web, and uh, yeah, it's it's a profound, it's a small but kind of profound uh, change to make. Yeah, let's actually dive into that. Uh, the whole uh, inversion, that's a really good word, uh, really just changes the paradigm with how a user uses the internet, whereas in the old world, uh, you have to uh, sign up for the rules of the website that you use. Uh, and then in this new world, uh, it's these applications that are requesting your permission to access your funds to behave in a, in a particular way. Uh, and so MetaMask it isn't doing this, but it seems to be dabbling in the world of identity yeah. uh, because it's really providing the user's uh, identity towards uh, the blockchain. Um, you know, it doesn't do any like sort of self, um, self-sovereign self identity. It doesn't have like civil resistance or anything like that. But it is the person's uh, m- way of representing themselves on chain. Uh, so how – in your guys' discussions at MetaMask, how often does the role of or the topic of identity come up in, in design cho- choices? Um, 
I think that at MetaMask, we actually use the term identity less than a lot of other wallet or blockchain teams do. Um, I think that we look at, I, when we are talking about what an account is and what it does, we are usually are using the terms of like the empowerment of the user and what we're making possible for the user. Um, you can use the kind of cryptographic keys that we're uh, providing to kind of compose identity systems. And, and that's like all that's all empowerment. That's all stuff that we're making possible. And, you know, things like the three box project are, are using our signatures to, to build things like identity. And, and I love when I see that entire new like ecosystems like identity can kind of burgeon out of these like core tools. Um, but, uh, I think the, the extent that we think about identity for the most part, it has to do with, um, how private or how, uh, anonymous is one of your accounts and, and, uh, like what, what are the collection of uh, abilities that that account has? Um, so, so I, and I usually think of that in terms of a persona, um, but your persona can be private to you. It's possible that you make an account on MetaMask and nobody else ever knows what it is. And, you know, you tell me if that's an identity, uh, you know, I think it becomes kind of a philosophical exercise pretty quickly. MetaMask is not necessarily the standard for Web3, but rather it's this Web3, um, this Web3 standard that any browser can log into. Curious to hear a little bit more about kind of the philosophy in building this standard and what other browsers out there are, like what other browsers are there other than MetaMask? Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting how quickly it's kind of started to get adopted. Um, when we came into the space, there was one other DAP browser-like thing. It was called Mist. It was a full client and it was an Electron app and uh, earlier this year, they finally uh, decided to close it down in part because the Electron architecture had like some kind of permanent unsolvable security issues. Um, but so that was like the one precedent we had. So we're like, okay, the Ethereum Foundation is kind of uh, showing the way where it's like, it's kind of a browser and it's kind of a wallet. Um, but there were a bunch of other features that we didn't totally agree with. So like um, the notion that when a transaction comes through it shouldn't automatically be signed. That was like one of our, we're like, actually let's, let's make a firm wall between the websites and your keys. Uh, early on, there was kind of a like, don't visit sites you don't trust. Uh, that seems like breaking one of the uh, ideas of the web. And so, so we started just kind of making some decisions um, about how we thought the platform should work. And, you know, some people came to us and they're like, oh, well, you should go to W3C. These are like the browser standards guys. You should go like appeal at a board, you know, and try to convince Google and Apple that these are the right things to do. And we were like, well, we could do that, or we could just make this browser extension and let people build apps on it. And uh, that was definitely like the anarchic uh, solution. And it was like, a, you know, an approach that just let us start iterating and let the community give us feedback immediately. And now we see um, the Opera browser has integrated this kind of wallet. Uh, we're working with the Brave browser to integrate more deeply into theirs. Um, who knows what the next browser that might integrate some of this stuff is. Um, but what I think we've seen is we've seen like a little bit of a bypassing of the kind of traditional gatekeepers of the web. And so like even traditional mainstream browsers are starting to integrate this stuff. And, and that's not even to mention that on mobile, there's uh, several uh, kind of DAP browsers now, which are basically MetaMask mobiles um, doing very similar things. So you can go to a website, you can sign transactions, all that stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's there's a few of those. Uh, you know, Gnosis Safe, uh, Coinbase has one. I think it's a Coinbase Wallet. Um, there's uh, 
Trust Wallet, and you know, there's there's a few others um, out there too. Uh, but yeah, it's a growing space, and and keeping track of it even is is hard. Like it's it's an exciting space, and people have different ideas about it. Some people are like, it shouldn't be a browser thing; it should be a mobile login thing, and you know, lots of lo lots of different opinions about how it should go. But that's part of the the benefit of having so many different approaches at once is we are throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall. So I, I expect something good to come out of it. So what is in the uh, near-term future for MetaMask? Yeah, so right now at MetaMask, we, we've got a couple big kind of projects going on at once. One of them is we've got our mobile client, and a lot of people are familiar with that. So you can sign up right now at mobile.metamask.io and basically be on it the same day. Um, it's, but it's still through sign up, uh, a sign-up system. Um, we're also experimenting with becoming more of a login system. So one of the big complaints today with the way someone interacts with the website through MetaMask is we, we have this really tight wall around your funds and we require a, a confirmation for every single action. And if you imagine being on a web browser where it's asking your permission to load every little image, it's gonna drive you crazy really quickly. Um, but meanwhile, if we could, when you first log in, um, agree to a set of terms that you're gonna engage with that site on, um, then we can uh, give that site some leeway uh, where you don't have to be nagged anymore, but it has specific uh, limits on what it could possibly do. So this could be you know, everything from which account you're signed in with to whether it can decrypt messages on your behalf to whether it can send transactions potentially without uh, further confirmation. And so we're kind of building out a system and a set of proposals for the larger ecosystem uh, for a kind of uh, permissions request API. And we're hoping that this is going to take us to the next the next chapter beyond you know asking user confirmation 50 times per website is this relevant to web 2 or is this for web 3 uh, it's it's all web 3 based but actually i think that it becomes increasingly useful for web 2 because you know we're just giving you these cryptographic keys and so yeah you can write steps to the blockchain and yeah you can request money but also now you can have secure encrypted chat in a website and now we could mm -hmm potentially interact with other peer-to-peer -peer protocols. Uh, and, uh, you know, we could potentially integrate, let's say that three box profile or another kind of decentralized identity system. And I, I think it has a lot of potential to, to grow and expand and become a, it kind of, you know, like one of those many, many login systems, but one that is user centric and, and entirely authorized by the user. Um, so like those cookies prompts you get every time, you know, the GDPR prompts, like, this site wants to store cookies. Is that okay? It's like that. Only when you say no, they literally can't anymore. You're not just taking their word for it. I'm kind of curious if you've been paying attention to uh, Willow Burn at all. So he used to. I think I'm not sure what he used to do in the Ethereum community, but um, he recently took a lot of these kind of like Web three protocol idea and formatting um, standardizations, and he started p instrumenting similar ideas for the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Um, so he created an extension called the Jewel extension. Oh, He's right. working on like a web LN standard type of an idea. Curious if you've been paying attention to that at all and what you thought of that. Yeah, the Jewel extension actually was, if I'm not mistaken, it's a fork of MetaMask. So, you know, they, they were like, oh, well, we want to try making Lightning Network more accessible. What's the easiest way to do that and make it pleasant? Well, we've got an open source framework for interacting with websites cryptographically. So they, they took that off the shelf and... I was, I was very proud to see that it'd be easy enough for them to modify it for their uses. And I thought that was really cool. And I think that's a great way to push a technology like Lightning Network to its uh, absolute limits and, and let people play with that. 
Um, now, in the long term, I would love to see MetaMask grow to be something where it is itself modular enough that people don't have to fork it every time they have a new experiment they want to wage. Um, so that's a kind of longer term goal for our project. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, I, I saw that and I thought it was great. And, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know if you're uh, fishing for some Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, adversarial uh, drama, but I... I'm not. I'm not too big on that. It would spice things up, but I'm not fishing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I. I thought. I thought it was cool. I like seeing developers be creative, um, and uh, so that was that was cool to see. Kind of building on that, would love to hear a little bit more about like this bigger vision for MetaMask. Yeah, the the lowest hanging fruit is just like the stuff we're already doing, where it's like, well, just get better and better at being an Ethereum thing. But but the long game, I think, is is can we can we pave a road for like, cause okay, so we got we got a leg up on on what it looks like for helping a user hold some keys and manage some accounts and and yeah, there's a lot of new patterns coming out, but there's also a lot of, I mean, there's <laughs> there's an ecosystem of new tools coming out, right? There's so many so many other uh, chains, identity standards, new contract accounts, uh, new new types of uh, assets on chain, and we want to support all of those. Um, so we're our our current um, kind of uh, roadmap looks a lot like um, finding the things where we are a bottleneck to the ecosystem. Like, where is it that a developer comes to us and they're like, please merge my system. You know, it's like, oh, I've got an exchange. Please merge my exchange into MetaMask. Finding every little thing like that where, where people come to us and they, they end up begging and, and instead trying to say, look, how can we, if this is a decentralized system, how can we make that just a user's choice? Like, how do we make it where a user goes around the web and they just like add that to their to their wallet, um, so so that we can kind of get out of the way and kind of un totally unhinge the the rate of innovation. Um, so that's that's a that's a little uh, that's a little uh, high level, but yes, could it support other chains? I think it kind of has to at some point. Like you know, one of the cool things about Ethereum is that well, it's Turing complete, so you can do a a lot of things on it. If you can build state channels and you can build this plasma chain and you can make a side chain peg, like there should be nothing stopping you from making a Bitcoin peg. And if we need to be able to support a Bitcoin peg, then we need to be able to support Bitcoin. Um, so I, I think that the decentralized wallet of the future is is uh, a user centric kind of protocol agnostic uh, utility belt for the decentralized web. Would you think it's pretty reasonable to uh, have a version of MetaMask in the future that, uh, you know, is the MetaMask that Ethereans know and, and use, but then also maybe has like uh, Bitcoin Lightning Network integrated as well. And so you can kind of think of like Lightning and Web3 kind of being stitched together maybe through MetaMask. Is that a reasonable conclusion? Uh, uh, maybe. I, I think I'd, I hope to not have to maintain two different projects. So to me, that just <laughs> like, like we definitely have occasionally been like, uh, should we just have an easy mode, you know, for like the noobs and mm -hmm. stuff? But um, I, I think that a lot of the stuff that makes, let's say, Ethereum or you know any uh, versatile blockchain interesting is is how open ended it is. So if we like we're like okay, easy mode means it's only ERC twenty tokens. Well, then I would feel bad putting the MetaMask name on it if it means oh you you can use tokens but you can't like you know deposit them into mm -hmm. some you know, interesting collateral backed uh, leverage system or whatever to crowdfund your community or whatever. Um, I, I don't want to hamstring anyone. So I'd, I'd rather focus on trying to make what we're making uh, as usable as possible.
That makes a lot of sense. And I'm actually kind of curious, what is like the development process for MetaMask and who's contributing to it? Is it strictly like kind of your core group or is this like a full flourishing, completely open open source project? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, changed the composition of contribution a bit over its life cycle. Right now, it's definitely the vast majority is our core team. So we've got 20 people on our team. Um, we're funded by consensus. Um, and, you know, at some point, we're going to figure out how to uh, sustain ourselves. And we've got a couple ideas for monetization uh, in the works. But uh, the way it works right now is... Uh, we're basically a two-week sprint process. Um, we've got a couple people working on longer-running kind of labs or R&D experiments. Um, but then, you know, every every two weeks, we try to lay out uh, what looks like two weeks of work and try to agree to it, and then uh, and do it. And we've got we've got two designers and a design researcher that help us kind of gather intelligence from users and try to help us focus, uh, you know, the features that we are making to make sure they're usable. And uh, then we've got you know, a variety of developers that uh, are very talented at contributing to different aspects of the code base. And um, yeah, yeah, I think it's it's pretty, pretty straightforward. I, I think sometimes people romanticize like a, a fairly, you know, the when it like lacks structure, I, I think I think we've gained a lot of structure. I think we try to get buy in uh, from the team. But uh, I, I wouldn't say we're total anarchy, um, per se. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes we you know, we have to make hard decisions uh, about uh, where we take the ecosystem. And uh, yeah, we just try to stay stay as much on the same page as possible. So Dan, I know in addition to MetaMask, you are generally a big thinker type guy. Uh, so when it comes to the world of Ethereum, uh, what else do you think about? Like what else uh, f- captures your attention when you go home and pull up Twitter? Uh, when, when I'm thinking about Ethereum specifically or just like about the world yeah. in general? When I'm thinking about Ethereum, uh, Ethereum, we'll get to the world later, but Ethereum now. Yeah, yeah. So, so Ethereum. One one thing is so so. There's a lot of research going on in Ethereum, and ETH 2.0 is very exciting. Or and uh, you know, I don't know if it's one or two years away or whatever. Um, but I I pretty much stay focused on like what's tangible and attainable, even in the short term. And so even if we had a thousand x you know scaling improvement from ETH 2.0, I, I tend to think that. Like that's not enough for everybody to be like every little profile update to be on a blockchain. Like, so I think it's really important to be thinking kind of constantly about um, what does it mean to kind of stay in consensus as a civilization while minimizing our use of actual consensus. And you know, I think I think that things like the counterfactual state channel um, approach is like is like very very apt. And like the Wisp uh, thing by by Rick Mu, um, you know, it's, it's the idea of you can have a contract account that you never publish and you only ever need to publish it, you know, when, well, basically when you're using it. Um, but I think that a lot of things, a lot of social contracts can be represented in similar terms. You know, if we make a contract now, we don't have to take it to the Supreme Court for it to be uh, potentially admissible to the Supreme Court should it you know, be worthy of their attention. Can you, for a lot of our listeners, won't have heard this. Can you kind of give us the one-on-one on this subject? On the on the counterfactual framework? Yeah, the 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 concept of Ethereum as a court system, and then also not needing to go to the Supreme Court. Sure, sure. So, so a, the blockchain is just like an order of transactions, and it's got you know to start just one currency, it's Ether, um, and now we can make up new currencies on top of that. So, for example, I can make up DanCoin right now, and if I want, I can start that by going to the blockchain and I can say, I want to start DanCoin, 
and it's like, okay, we'll pay a transaction fee and I'll do that. Now, every time I want to send some to somebody, okay, I got to pay a transaction fee. Okay. And I'm using a lot of the blockchain there, right? But if I start saying, okay, well, what's the least possible that I could use the blockchain that whole time? I could say, okay, what if, okay, so there's this, this thing out there called the counterfactual framework. And what it will let me do is write a contract, uh, publishing transaction, which will definitely result in a knowable address in the future. And so I actually don't have to send the transaction for me to basically have DanCoin. So I can publish this. I can share it with you. You could now publish DanCoin as I intended to with its original distribution and everything. But we literally didn't touch the blockchain. We're only going to touch the blockchain now if it's ever called to question who has DanCoin. And so now I want to start giving them out. Well, I could have composed that thing in such a way where I can sign, um, I can, I can mint DanCoin by sending it to my friends. And so literally I could, I could make an entire initial allocation of my personal, you know, maybe this is a crowdfunding, um, token or something uh, entirely without touching the blockchain at all. And so the only time that you need to touch the blockchain is actually, it's the moment that somebody sends it away. It's not just adjudicating, but it's basically when somebody's losing it. Um, because that's what the blockchain was invented for. It's double spend protection. It's to make sure that when you send me your money, you're not going to actually spend it on somebody else. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about those kinds of composition patterns and how we can, uh, facilitate them in, in MetaMask. Cause it's, it's a kind of crazy stuff to think, uh, what you're going to have this process on your computer and it's going to have all these like potentially transmissible bytes, which could result in value, but, uh, they don't, unless you do it's, it's, it's weird. It's abstract. And, um, I hope I said that w well enough for anyone who hadn't heard of it before, but, um, but, but in short, you know, I, I feel like what, what the wallet should be doing is watching your back for you. So to you, it should be invisible. You, if you wanted to make your coin, we just gave you an option. We said, did you, do you want to pay up now? Or do you want to just postpone that? And, uh, and so over time, hopefully we can make fewer and fewer things requiring payment up front, and more and more of the blockchain can kind of live at other layers. It could be on layer two networks and you might live in a neighborhood of the blockchain instead of having to always be checking into like, you know, the, the biggest, you know, I like whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, if you want the highest security for a single transaction, you want the, uh, the blockchain with the most kind of like economic, uh, insurance behind it. So, so, but does every transaction need that? I would argue probably not. So I'm looking at ways that we can facilitate people getting the insurance they need for a given transaction without, uh, yeah, overwhelming these base layer protocols. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. And, and honestly, that kind of is along the lines of a lot of the kind of like Bitcoiner narrative of how you should be using block space and how you should be using blockchain and trying to abstract things away, um, from the blockchain and, you know, even like I, I was crazy enough at a lightning thing um, where uh, a developer was talking to me about uh, this idea of like you don't actually need the blockchain to have contracts. You can just have contracts and execute them on in good faith and never touch um, any sort of enforcement or insurance assurance mechanism like the blockchain, which would enforce it in a dispute. And that would scale a lot further than just putting everything on the blockchain. So it's interesting to see that. You are also see you know you're you're going in that direction as well, and I'm curious to see if ETH and the ETH community and ETH developers um, start thinking in that way um, as well. I definitely think some of them are like, and that's what it comes down to. So there's going to be a lot of experimentation where 
like we're just trying to make apps, you know? So people aren't necessarily thinking about scalability up front and they're like, what's the coolest contract account I can make? What are the best features I could possibly have in my wallet? And that is a great way to experiment and iterate and discover great experiences. Um, but but yeah, I think long-term that these, these issues are unavoidable even. Um, and, and yeah, uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that Bitcoin would be saying that, right? Like, I guess in Ethereum's uh, criticism of Bitcoin is often maybe it's block time and they're like, oh, that's not very usable, you know, as if 15 seconds is a great user experience uh, for the uh, Ethereum block time. I actually think for the lightest light clients, Bitcoin has a far too fast block time. That's, this, that's, that'll be my troll of the, of the conversation. I, I need like daily or yearly block times and that, that way that can really be like the Supreme, like, can you imagine a Supreme Court, they take one case a year and they're just like, and keeping synced on that is just going to be so, so low resource. Like you can do it on IOT. It's, it's really, anyways, uh, you can buy into my ICO, uh, just, uh, DM me on Twitter. <laughs> That's pretty funny. The way that we're using, uh, this model for both Bitcoin and Ethereum as these settlement layers, um, and then Ethereum gets a little bit more expressive because it's Turing complete, which means contracts. Uh, and so Ethereum has always been, um, not like, like you said, not to everyone, but to some people, this, uh, hierarchical, uh, court system for settling disputes, uh, which really treads into the territory of what a government does. Um, that's like why we have the Supreme court. Uh, and that's arguably why we have structure at all in our, uh, government and in our, in our nations. And, and one thing I've always thought about is how these things will, how these systems are going to butt up into each other. Uh, and so like right now, Bitcoin and Ethereum really aren't doing much, uh, th at least when it comes to threatening big nation states. Um, but if they turn into the things that we want them to, they're, they're designed to do that. And, uh, especially when, um, an individual might carry over all of their personal finances over to a system, a new web three system. Uh, and you can, perhaps opt out of the whole traditional you know, nation state stack, especially when we get things like self-sovereign identity uh, and we can have our own version of ourselves with all of our value on the internet. And then we have opted out of the nation state as a whole. Um, how is this, uh, does this uh, concept or model, Dan, uh, resonate with you? Does that, does that seem to make sense? I, it makes sense. I, I, there's, there's points where I kind of think it diverges from like practicality. Um, like for example, opting out of the nation state stack, like, I mean, we, you can try, but if you've got like mm -hmm. a nation state surrounding you and enforcing their notion of property rights, then, you know, good, good luck. You know, I mean, I will wish you the very best luck in that attempt. Um, I, I think that these things can co-evolve for quite a while, and I don't think that they're fundamentally adversarial or cooperative. Uh, they're just tools. Um, I think, you know, so blockchains, you know, if, they, if they're totally immutable, if you treat them like you'll never, you, like, let's say, yeah, you cannot get this community to align. Uh, let's say Ethereum Classic's uh, best dream of the future is, is real. Um, in that case, then every glitch in a contract is enforceable, right? And so the highest Supreme Court is just a robot, like telling you that you put a bug in your agreement. Um, that would be a disappointing thing to turn out to be like the end all be all of like the social fabric, I, I think, um, which is probably why I, you know, uh, yeah, didn't really follow that side of the fork very strong. Um, 
but uh, what what the blockchain is good for is anything that can be kind of automated. It's just like it's like a computer supreme court, right? So everything to the computer is what the computers can calculate, and then as soon as the humans disagree with it, then well, we are slower and you know we may be more reasonable in our opinions. So when we disagree with the, what the computers do, we're, we we've got our hands on the power plug. We can do whatever we want with them, right? We're we're a layer above the computer. Like whether or not you want to treat the computer like it's God. Like they they're living in our world, um, we can do whatever we want with them. So, so I think that like human coordination systems, be they local governments or federal governments or just groups of people agreeing to run their blockchain software, are going to continue being the the actual fundamental uh, ruling system of any digitized consensus uh, system. And and I think that's that's fine. Uh, but but it can in the meanwhile automate the heck out of all sorts of smaller contracts that, you know, otherwise people don't have like the, the money to go to court. You know, like I, I was a small business owner. I was a screen printer before I was a programmer and like there would be clients, you know, they wouldn't pay and like, and like I, I'd litigate, but then good luck collecting. And it's just like, if you don't have access to massive resources, like the legal system isn't really able to even help you. So, so what if we could digitize portions like that like basic enforcement of just the transfer of funds like that seems like a great use of a blockchain and then we can take like the actual disputes of whether it was legitimate or not and let that fall in the human layer dan you sound again kind of like a bitcoiner to me i don't huh. know why but uh I, i'll it, take that as really, a what you're saying but from you what you're saying kind of resonates <laughs> i had to lull when you were kind of describing uh the computer and then on top of that like the self-executing computer and then you saying that uh, the computers live in our world because that sounds like famous last words to me. Um, we very well are living in the computers world, oh. and uh, that that could oh, become oh. much more evident Wait. soon. Let me put an asterisk. The, the, I'll add an asterisk. The computers I'm referring to are the ones that are in our world. I'll refer to the like uh, the God computers if if we're to be referring to any hypothetical uh, ones that I just think that computers are going to be doing most of the activity in the world soon if they're not already doing it. So that sure. to me makes it seem like it's the computers world. Are we are we uh, debating right now whether because Dan you kind of made it seem like if there something happens uh, on a blockchain that the human collective disagrees with then we can impart that disagreement on the blockchain and change it uh, which is like the opposite of what a, a mutable blockchain is is that what you were saying sure well so here's here's how I'll I'll, say, I'll even refine it to make it more agreeable to the most blockchain maximalist people. Um, I bet you that most agreements that people choose to engage in on blockchains will have a human release valve somewhere down it. Like either you'll opt into a, a, a dispute resolution system as a service, uh, or you'll subscribe to a blockchain that you think you can uh, coerce into hard forking. But I think it, it's going to be very unlikely that people get to a point Or I mean, you know, more power to them. If, if we can get to the point where we are always confident that we can compose computer code that accurately reflects our ideals and ideas but you know the whole the whole like idea of like legal theory is that like there's actually a lot of power in having gray area and and you know exceptions and, and places where you do introduce some kind of dispute resolution so um the kinds of smart contracts that i'm most interested in don't exclude humans from the the picture um no i think they would actually take advantage of their unique perspectives sounds like a multi-sig 
I mean, multi-sigs are, are useful. Uh, yeah, I, I'm in, I, I like those. I, I, uh, I don't like having to wait on other people. I like faster response times, personally. I mean, you could have a computer on the other end, but... Yeah, yeah, well, then that's not a very multi-sig. I don't, I don't need a rubber stamp. <laughs> that's, that's no uh, oversight. I'm just saying there's different ways you can format this bad boy. Right. I, I agree. And that's, that's why it's so fun, is like there are so many ways. And so we just get to live in that game design world. How, how lucky. I remember there was an app that came out called Reversible ETH, and you could send ETH to people, and you had uh, like a 30-minute window to undo that transaction in case like you fucked up the address and you need to pull it back. Huh. Which I feel like is a very early uh, implementation of what you're talking about, right? Like there is a it's like a beta for like if you messed up and you need to go back, there's a a mechanism for you to do that. And it sounds like you're talking about a much more complex, elaborate system where there's you know human subjectivity that enabled in that. Um, I just wanted to to bring that up because it seems it, I I do see what you see, um, and I think that like the the concept of like reversible ETH is a very early. Um, early stage development that illustrates that. Yeah, yeah, it'd be scary to receive that, I guess. Uh, but, but yeah, and, and I, well, after you have it for thirty minutes, it's locked. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I was mm-hmm. like, I'm like thinking of the times that I've known people to make mistakes sending and trying to imagine if that would have solved it. Like, because yeah, some of yeah, <laughs> I like to think sometimes it would. Yeah, I, I was trying to speak vaguely enough that it could be kind of open ended and encompass a lot of possible solutions. I, I have no idea what the uh, you know total final whatever you know. I, I assume we'll always be in flux. Um, but yeah, that sounds like one nice safety valve that could have helped some people. Mm-hmm. At least for a beta. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about the term hyper tokenization? Uh, I don't know if I've heard it or if I've heard it, I just shrugged it off as like Twitter thought leader speak or something. David speak. Um, what, what is, what does it mean to you? So what it means to me is, is there is just more digital assets that one human can comprehend in the same way that humans can never go across the entire internet uh in the future there are going to be more digital tokens that any single one person would ever be able to 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 see is that a future that you see yeah yeah completely yeah and and i know not everybody thinks i think that's a very uh that sounds in opposition to a lot of what i hear from the bitcoin side i i don't follow a lot of the main bitcoin people who say things like the future is going to have one currency and stuff. So that, that's an easy unfollow for me. Um, I think that there are, I, I think that in, in one way, for example, uh, assets should represent a variety of underlying things. So, uh, you know, this token could represent ticks on that computer. This token ticks on that one. You know, I mean, my watch could have its own ticks. Haha. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's one for my local coffee shop, another one for Starbucks, um, uh, one for an hour of your time and uh, another for uh, you know uh, you know a day of your effort or something. Um, yeah, I, I see no reason to not just have like a complete plurality of tokens representing all sorts of things. So I don't want to necessarily object because I kind of agree with you. Like, there's going to be a long tail of you know airline miles and Starbucks points. That's fine. I think that there already is too many tokens to for any one human to uh, go over right now. So we are, by that definition, already in hyper-tokenization, and it's pretty much meaningless. What is pretty meaningful is, like, on this distribution curve, what is accumulating 80-plus percent of the value. And I feel like that's going to be one or very, very few digital assets um, kind of holding that. Maybe. I don't know. like, for example, uh, I, I would just say, like, it, it, there will always be maybe a dominant asset within a given uh, sample pool that you're collecting from. 
So maybe, yeah, maybe there will be a most popular asset uh, on the planet Earth. That doesn't seem unlikely. And then we meet some aliens, and they've got their own uh, coin that they're real maximalists of, and suddenly it, it looks a little bit bigger than ours. We might be start hedging a little bit. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know if I would say that there's definitely going to be one in the entire universe uh, for sure. Definitely, let's constrain these uh, yeah. these conversations to Earth. Sure, sure. I don't think anyone has figured out how to get their blockchain onto another planet. Right, but like even even like okay, Bitcoin or whatever. Like so, Bitcoin may be uh, yeah. I mean by by all like visible metrics or something has the highest market cap or something. But uh, yeah, who knows? Like one nation state away from like having a bigger fiat coin or something. You know, like I, I don't know. Like I I, I have no idea. I. It's probably useful to have something like that. Um, I think of it more in settlement, finality, and security uh, in terms of like what it what its underlying like value is for for blockchains. Um, so yeah, so is the finality currency going to become the most valuable thing in the world? That, that's almost how I would turn it on its head because it's like sure there will be a most popular uh, you know consensus algorithm, and then there will also be a most popular currency. Do those have to be the same thing? Will will nuclear power not be more power, more valuable than you know consensus power? I don't, I don't know. Interesting. I would say maybe more than finality token. I would say proof of work token or or energy token because right. Bitcoin effectively transforms energy into money and right. turns it into this uh, transportable non you know holdable thing that transcends time. Right. I would bet that energy stays more valuable than bitcoin that's i think that's a fair bet uh oh oh no is that i mean I'm bitcoin is just time. the buyer of the cheap energy so I, I i mean bitcoin wouldn't be able to buy it all unless the pool of bitcoin uh, value got bigger than the energy value and that's what i'm disputing is possible like I, I think it's unlikely that so much finance pours into Bitcoin that it dwarfs the energy economy. I mean, maybe, I think personally it's just going to fill in the gaps, but we don't even have to go this far. I think we're, I'm, we're derailing a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. Definitely just speculating now. Dan, uh, going back to trying to tap into that, that big thinker that I know that you are, let's say that it's 15 to 20 years into the future. Ethereum 2.0 has arrived and it's working as intended. People are becoming more and more savvy with how to manage crypto assets. What does the world of cryptocurrency look like? Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the big structures that, that everyone's tapping into? Yeah. So, so right away, um, I would think that it changes how everybody accesses, accesses liquidity. And we might even end up with a new word for that because it just ends up being like collective will. <laughs> um, so I think that people are going to have better access to collective will that uh, represents um, the like integrity of what they try they want to do so so i like to think that if somebody doesn't have the skills they need getting a cheap education that's like at cost like should be reasonable you know like the cost of an education should be similar to the value you're expecting to or the, the energy to give it to you basically uh minus like the doubt that you like the uh, return that uh, you know uh back to the economy or whatever um and and likewise any small business um and likewise any uh, and then, uh, yeah, I had a conversation earlier today where uh, it, was, it was about how people even decide what to invest in. Um, I think even that is disrupted. I think that people will increasingly be invested in like their communities and in things that they know about. And I think that this will give them a very like grounded and both diversified and um, 
and uh yeah and grounded uh kind of investment portfolio because like today you know you, uh, you go to some you know some corporation you don't know what, what they're doing with their stock buyback program you know you, you invest in some uh some bond you don't really know what that central bank is doing you know maybe they're going to be good maybe they're not but i think that uh what with the hyper tokenization um i think people are going to have access to investing in more and more things that actually make sense to them and that's going to both empower them and the people that they know and um, so hopefully, uh, I, I hope that this means people are able to plainly coordinate over things that plainly uh, are valuable. And the most important of those things to me is, is global warming and climate change and, and, you know, maybe getting off this planet and diversifying our shares on planets, getting hit by asteroids. Um, so, you know, just things like that. So, so hopefully it empowers people with good ideas to execute on those. And, and that's, that's how it manifests at, at the most high level. What is the number one existential threat for human beings? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 we, we probably don't see it coming, right? Maybe it's asteroids. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's UFOs. Maybe it's just the climate change. Um, but you know, climate collapse. You know, there will be a few people that survive that. They'll live in a little bubble, or will they not be able to keep the food cycle going? I don't know. I, I'm I'm really concerned about the climate. Um, I, I think it's a severe tragedy. Um, but yeah, it's just like a race between that and asteroids, probably, uh, or like a meteorite. I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast about how uh, asteroids hitting the Earth is like way more common than we think it is, and that it was actually uh, that uh, an asteroid that caused the great extinction rather than uh, the commonly thought human beings. Uh, I can't remember hmm. when that was, but like when humans turned from monkeys to humans, everyone thinks we killed a bunch of people. Uh, turns out it was an asteroid. Yeah, or, or a super volcano, right? Like, I, we're not even mm -hmm. sure what killed the dinosaurs, right? Um, yeah, there's plenty, right, right, plenty right. of things that could surprise us. We we, should, we need to be ready. <laughs> we need to be in just ready pose as a as a civilization. Uh, but instead, we're like in internal turmoil, just rocking in the corner. Um, yeah, we need we need to get over that. Um, <laughs> Do you think that? cryptocurrencies and global sediment networks are is that going to help us get from where we are now to where we need to be in order to stop like fighting amongst each other and start getting onto new planets not by itself <laughs> um but i think it'll help i like like cryptocurrency like when you just say the currency then i'm like probably not because if we just issue currencies and they're just issued by the same people that have money now it's going to mean the same distribution of wealth and the same like failure to coordinate that we see with the current distribution of wealth. Um, so what I'm really, that's why I'm excited about specifically things like smart contracts where people could, we could make a pact, right? We could make a deal. We could say, if, if we're going to, we're both going to do this, we're going to go in, we're going to make our shuttle. Uh, if you don't uphold the deal as we've agreed to, then you're, you're losing your stake or whatever. Right. And, and I think that there are tools like that, that we can make with uh, smart contracts to, to just align people, you know, like, just think Kickstarter on steroids, on like planetary steroids, where it's like, like you can pitch an idea. You don't have, you don't need to be the guy who's like lying that you know how to make a phone from scratch. You can say like, guys, I think we need a phone, and you can just like rally the experts and and gather the funding as needed in public, transparently, in a way that's like socially enforceable among the people promising to do things. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that I'm I'm hoping to do with it. I mean, today, like I my can't even get my street paved without like 
the contractors like trying to do a shoddy job and then the city trying to get them to do it again and it's like there's just no accountability layer it's like there's like severe coordination problems at, at even just the most kind of tri seemingly trivial layers um i, I think that we, we've got some real issues in how we govern ourselves and we need to iterate and i'm not claiming that i have like all the answers of how that's done but i know that having tools for automating agreements is a really great first step towards uh, iterating and experimenting and, and just trying to get a better handle on it. Does the income distribution of cryptocurrencies, especially ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum, if they rise in price as many people think they do, uh, how do you feel about uh, the inequality of the system based on the distribution of people that hold the assets? Does that worry you? Does that keep you up at night? Um, if we have a bunch of benevolent dictators, then there should be no problem. Um, but I, I wouldn't totally count on that. Uh, and that's why I, when I'm thinking of the things I want to make possible with the blockchain, it doesn't rely on the crypto whales saving us. So I'm thinking about things like, well, what does it take for somebody who doesn't have any crypto to start raising some for some of their good ideas? Like, that's what I care about. Now, they may need to buy some, some crypto from a crypto whale to get their court time or whatever. But as long as those markets stay public and competitive... Uh, you know, and we make our uh, smart contract system scalable, that court time should be at least excessively affordable. <laughs> and that's, you know, huge assumption, but it's going to be more affordable than the current court system at the very least. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. So it, it, uh, it doesn't keep me up awake any more than the current income distribution in that the rich aren't saving us. They're definitely just covering their own asses. And they're probably going to, for the most part, continue to, you know, you, you get some nice people out there, but, uh, you know, they can't, we can't just count on a couple of nice people. We, we have to like fundamentally uh, rewrite a lot of this stuff. I don't know. I, I can't really find it in me to agree with how you kind of phrase things. Although I don't want to outright just be like, no, you're wrong. Okay. Um, I do think that money is really important for fixing this. Uh, although... It's more about, like, if we have assurances that we can rely on and holding value is one of those, I feel like that is a huge paradigm shift in kind of how people are responsible for themselves. Rather than thinking, like, the rich need to save us is actually a way that you don't need to be saved because at least you can rely on certain things. And maybe you believe that goes beyond money, but I feel like that being in money is massive. Yeah, sure. I, I'm probably understating the importance of that. Like, you got to have, like, stable value, right? If we're going to coordinate and reward each other for cooperating, yeah, you got to be able to keep... we we, we got to be able to say, like, oh, we promised you this, and now you have that, and you get to keep it, and nobody's going to just deflate you into oblivion, right? Like, so I, I agree with you. Like, that that's huge and a complete prerequisite for having, like, a stable social order. Um, I, I think I'm just going to, to the next step there where I'm just saying... But even if, you know, uh, Joe Schmo has stable currency, if they're getting exploited and they can't get a good education and they can't fund their good ideas, even with the best of intentions, then we're, we're failing that person still to some degree. I mean, if they're, especially if, if they're just getting exploited, like, oh, they're getting minimum wage, but at least it doesn't uh, depreciate in value. That's a sad state to, to celebrate, I would think. Um, so I, I wouldn't stop there. That's, that's all. So, Dan, you and I have chatted about movies a bunch uh, on Twitter. Uh, is there a movie that you've watched that has some semblance of, 
like having crypto economic systems in the background. So for example, I would say Ready Player One kind of has this, right? Where it's like this open source distributed uh, land that everyone goes and shares. Uh, is there any, if, if somebody wants to get their crypto sci-fi future vision fix going, do you have any movie recs for them? Yeah, um, I, I am sorely disappointed with how much I think these ideas are represented in media. Um, I, I think literature probably does better, but I don't read as much as I watch stuff because I uh, <laughs> expire a lot of my brain by the end of the day. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Ready Player One, I'll just I'll pick on that a little bit because like, could it get more centralized? Like they're, they're just battling for who gets the key to the castle. Um, so mm-hmm. so I think I think that a lot of it kind of resonates right where it's like, oh, yeah, like kind of a shared digital world and you have stuff and, you know, it keeps its value. Like a lot of it hits the right notes. But then and then there's just that one little uh, cherry on top where it's like, wait a minute. They were totally relying on a benevolent dictator the whole time. And that's the only reason it worked. Um, I would love to see a version of that where they like explore the intricacies of, you know, like a Game of Thrones, but for a virtual world like, oh, that is ripe for the taking. Uh, yeah, please not just too prestigious. <laughs> like, I want to see some grassroots, you know, small group organizing to start and gradually work their way up, uh, you know, combating for market share. Surely this is right, right? Like, like Netflix, you, you listening? Uh, call it like Crypto Wars <laughs> or something. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah I, I wish I had better ones. Like, I, I like following, like, Manu Sadia, who wrote uh, Treconomics. Uh, he, he likes pointing to the kinds of post-scarcity economics in Star Trek. And, and that's cool, but... I still think like they give very very scant detail on how the heck it works. You know, it's it's almost like oh, well, once you have replicators, who cares? You know, you got re- warp drives and rep- replicators. Why are they still fighting Romulans? Uh, it doesn't even make sense. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I wish I I wish I could give you a, a really good answer for something that I'd seen, but um, I don't think a lot of stuff. What about a non-crypto movie? What about a, just a normal movie that you've seen that it was impressed you lately? Uh, this is mainly for my benefit. At this uh, oh point. yeah, yeah. I, I gave you. Uh, I, I told you uh, when I saw uh, Primer. That was that was one of the best movies I saw the last year, even though it's like ten mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me see. I I sometimes note down things that are. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I I I don't know if I have any movies I want to recommend right now. Um. I just watched the new Quentin Tarantino one. Uh, that's that was good, but yeah, it's it's just kind of like indulging in a uh, fantasy of killing cultists. You know, it's not like radically rewriting how we organize ourselves. Um, hmm. Um, I, there was a moment in uh, Game of Thrones, uh, like the second or third to last episode, where I was like, "Oh, that's kind of what I'm talking about." Or um, I know that you you watched that interview where I was talking a lot about the uh, social collateral concept, and and they did mm-hmm. it in Game of Thrones where um jamie lannister comes back to the north and and they're like why i i should kill you right now you know you betrayed my family and then uh brienne of tarth comes over and she's like well he saved my life and they're like you vouch for him you're like yeah i'd fight you'd fight alongside him you'd die for him they're like okay well if you say all that you know like let him in um so (laughs) so to me that was like a microcosm of the kind of cooperation i would like to facilitate at like a globally autonomous scale um so like if you can if you can really embrace what it means to to uh take take one of your friend's words vouching for somebody um just imagine if we automate if we if we stitch those kind of vouchers together i think we could build a very tight uh kind of economic uh synergy that's awesome i think that's a great place to to wrap it up christian do you have any more questions 
I don't want you to, to end it because this is kind of like the part where I'm like, do you believe in money? <laughs> but um, but we're, we definitely are going pretty long here. Uh, do I believe in money? I I can answer that. I mean, yeah, I have some, right? Like so. So I guess I guess so. Uh, but, but it sounds like your this like social contract thing is like it's almost like a barter of words. Social collateral. Maybe. Um, yeah, I, I think of money. Like, I, I my degree is in English, and, and I look at the English language as a technology. And similarly, I look at money as a technology. It's it's a technology for coordinating people, right? So it's just a way of you incentivize. You know, as long as you're redeeming it for something valuable, now you can get people to do what you want. I think we can do better. Um, I think I think it's a rudimentary take, and I think humans are very very clever, and we can come up with all sorts of interesting alternatives. Dan, if people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, where can they find you? Uh, they can definitely find me. I'm not a very avid tweeter these days, but I'm on there on Dan Finlay. I also write a bit on Medium, also under Dan Finlay, just one word, all lowercase. Um, and if they read the codes, you can find me on GitHub too and uh, you know, collaborate and push some code up to the, the various things that I'm working on. Do you have any requests for our listeners? Um, yeah, I'll tell you what, jump, jump in, uh, take, take a chance here and there and, and try using some of these tools and, and see if you can, uh, help them grow. You know, maybe you don't know how to make them yourselves, but, but just participating and, and taking the, the extra time to learn something and try something out. That's really what a lot of the people building need to, to help it grow and improve. And, uh, and that can, that can help, that can make all the difference. Well, Dan, thank you for coming on the podcast. You are definitely one of the individuals that that makes me uh, believe very strongly in the future of Ethereum. So thank you for staying off of Twitter more than me. (laughs) Well, uh, I'll I'll do my best to continue, uh, but just keep it less entertaining. Uh, Cool. All right, everyone, you can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. Christian? Yeah, you can find me at CK underscore Snarks on Twitter. Please rate and review the show. Y'all are killing it. We're at 74 five-star reviews, a bunch of great comments. Keep it going. Let's get to 100. I promise Bitcoin 100K when POV 100 reviews, okay? Trust me, it's going to happen. It's science. It's how the blockchain works. (laughs) Cool. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. of